I know we're recording now. We haven't said hello. I'm Rusty Egan, and you haven't said hello. Yeah, we'll do that in Mark Shaler. Yeah, Mark Shaler. Yeah. You know, uh, I just walked in. He's having a story, which I think is more important now than the frilly introduction and the scripted. You know, no notes. You know, I'm doing a thing uh, on the thirtieth of the month. Yeah, and it's uh, an audience with Rusty Egan. Yeah, I did a thing in Glasgow called Me and My Laptop. And I posted a picture of a DJ in front of 10,000 people with his laptop as a joke because I will have me and 100 people, you know. And all I do is talk and tell stories That's without in, where interruption. Is that? Is, that, is that in Soho? No, it's in Pizza Express Live in uh, Holborn. Is it? On the 30th? Yeah. And also I've got merchandise there, which you can't really buy now because of Brexit. What I mean is if they put it in the post and you have to send it to Germany or France or anywhere... 10 times more expensive than the actual product, you know. It's true. Because of Brexit, you can't post anything anymore. You have to go on an aeroplane, declare it. Anyway, so my point really is, is I love talking. I love telling real stories. Yeah, but Rusty, where's your book? Oh, don't worry, Martin Kemp's got a book. Why don't you get that? I'm sure you'll um, find out everything in there. And um, (laughs) everything that I do try to do takes a really long time. And in the real world, the reason why Visage album number three was the turkey was there was no time. And, you know, your band broke up after album two. You had to put it all together and put an album. No, you've got to deliver. You've got to deliver. You know, you can get the cover done. (laughs) That was easy. So now what I do is I just do it in my own time. And uh, when I deliver something... It's, well, blow your own trumpet. I think it's a masterpiece. Oh, well, I've been listening to some of your tracks. Yeah, oh, thank you. Fuck me. The when la- you listen one to I listened to, yeah. the race, Our Darkness, the remix. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. For Anne, so Clark. Anne Clark. Oh, well, I've just... Oh, right. Well, it's Let, a remake. It's, it's brilliant. It's like a remix, like Loaded was remixed. Yeah. But, but it's a remake. Truth. That means I made all the music. I love it. I and love she it. she does the vocal. She does but the vocal. David Harris, who lives in LA, he made the original music. So even though I just remade it, obviously I'm remaking his music, yeah. you know, but I made it in my style. So I was up at Hacienda 40 two weeks ago. Me and my wife went up for the celebration. Was Ben Kelly there, the man who designed it? He, oh, no, but I he... I was with him at that horror exhibition. But he designed the space that we were in. Okay. So it looked like the Hacienda yes, again. Yes. And it was just the most one, the music were, they got a bit drum and bass which I can't really be asked with, but the main room, the music was amazing. Putting your track on this morning transported me back 10 days to that to Yeah, that, that is such a track. Here's the weird thing about Anne Clark and David Harris. The track is called Our Darkness and Anne is a poet. And I knew Anne hanging around with Mark Almond in Trident Recording Studios yeah. days and Mark and the Mambos and all that stuff. And I signed Soft Cell and Steve-O did, and the did whole Did you thing. really? Yeah. And I put them into my recording studio, gave them the office for Steve-O. So he had an office as part of the deal. Then I tried to sign the, the, but he, now he was like, oh, I've got to get offered a million quid, you know. So he went off sort of meeting all the big record company people. And uh, of course, I met Matt and he was dating a girl called Fiona at the time. And we all hung out, you know, I hung out with everyone before they got famous, like Sade was just a girl in the backing singer in the band, you know. Oh, I'm going to make a demo. I've got to hear it, I've got to hear it. So I was basically, if I could get the backer, Warner Chapel, then I could sign them like Yellow. I went to Zurich and got Yellow. So with that Our Darkness track, what happened was I got an email saying Anne is dealing with 
stage two or three cancer, hmm. which is the last thing in the world anyone wants to get a message to hear, right? Yeah. We're asking people, would they do a remix of her work? And of course, 25 DJs said, yeah, I'll do our darkness, right? And they, she, said, she said to me, it's gone. You know, we got someone doing that. So I went, all right, and there's another track, which I chose, which is the B-side. Mm -hmm. And then I said, I'm just going to remake it, you know. So I said to them, look, can I just have Anne's vocal, her poem reading? And he went, what do you want it for? I said, well, I've just got an idea. And the bottom line was I said, I've just remade it. Can you play it to her? And can you ask her if I can release it? Because it's not going to go on the album. So there was an, uh, there was an album of Anne Clark's works yeah. remixed by loads of DJs without my mix on it. <laughs> but you know what? It's, it's so good. I was yeah. just walking down Greek Street thinking, fucking hell. And this is absolutely yeah, yeah, It's amazing. And, and yeah. the other one I listened to was Some DJs Sister. commented they didn't like. Sister is amazing. Oh, with Boy George. Yeah, it's so good, isn't it? it? Yeah. I mean, genuinely. Look, let's start because we, we could be here all day. Yeah, I'm still making great music. And I've Thank only you. booked the room for an hour, so let's go with it. So I'm sat here in Soho, spiritual home of many people, probably including Rusty, who I'm sat with. And Billy's Club. And Billy's Club, indeed. Um, Dean Street. Mead Street. Mead Street, the yeah. Little road in the little road run, runs across, yeah. The little dark alley in Soho. Well, I still think Soho has still got those dark alleys. I know there are fewer, but occasionally you get caught out in Soho, yeah. and you think, oh, this feels a little bit dodgy. I like it. That's how I feel in Soho. Well, sadly, but true, I've just recently done a track for a film set in Soho called Midnight Peep Show. It just won an independent horror film award. And uh, I've got a track. The track will be on my new album called Midnight Peep Show. Wonderful. And uh, it is exactly that. It's this dark, but I got Gary Newman's current keyboard player, David Brooks. So it's sort of very Newman Sims, dark, solid bass and drums from me. And um, I do everything with my son now, Oscar. Egan. Yeah, I saw he, that. He yeah. does it, everything for me. Reluctantly, you know. I mean, if my dad had asked me to do jazz with him, <laughs> you know, because my dad was a jazz sax player. Was he know? really? What, for, for, it was, you're London-based, aren't you? You're from London. No, I'm born in Ireland, but I'm from London. Yeah, North London. Yeah. And um, my dad was an Irish, you know, came over from Ireland. And a sax player. So I listened to all the jazz. So if he said, right, when I was 20, I was playing drums at 14, actually. Yeah. Right, I want you to play jazz. Well, I tried it. I tried a 13 8, <laughs> you know, which is uh, for anybody who doesn't know, if you tried to follow Mike Oldfield um, Tubular Bells, Tubular Bells, it's in 13 8 time signature, which means you don't go one, two, three, Four, because it goes dun 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 bum dun dun dun. There's an emphasis, and wherever the emphasis is, at the beginning of the like take five. There's an emphasis, and that's the change of the tempo. So the bottom line was, I joined the National Youth Jazz Orchestra as like drummer number four, behind a guy called Richard James Burgess, and Richard was playing drums with anyone that would give him 15 quid in those days to go to a pub and play for whatever they wanted to hear, drunken sailor songs, it didn't matter. You did that, but in the daytime did what you wanted to do. And his thing was landscape, which was a jazz band. Yeah. Until he met me, and then I expressed my interest in his mate, a bloke called Dave Simmons. Yeah. 
because he'd invented a drum that went boo-boo, boo-boo. And it was now a new sound that you heard on disco records. Every disco record, yeah. And when you heard this record, boo-boo, you went, oh, what is that sound? And he said, oh, it's it's an electronic drum. I know the guy, David Simmons. So um, Richard, being a drummer, said, look, here you go, left, left, right, 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 left, right, right. And I started to learn paradiddles and all that stuff, which I thought is kind of like when you go to university, you've got to pass an exam, so you better do maths. You go, what's maths got to do with what I want to do? You know what I mean? Yeah. So I was like, I don't want to do all that. I just want to do four to the floor, you know. <laughs> anyway, so cut the story sideways. Richard took me to his house and he had a fair light. I said, how do you get this? He said, well, I write for this magazine. And they let me try it out. What else can you get? Can you get a Roland? Can you get this? So he goes, oh, I've got one of them. So the bottom line was, all the stuff that I used on Visage's debut album came from Richard. One of the best albums ever. Thank you. Thank you. Genuinely. I, I argue with people all the time. Thank you for that compliment. I argue with people all the time. And they don't get, and let me put it like this. If you go and talk to your father about advice, he'll give you advice because he loves you. And you go, look, son, stay away from drinking drugs. You know, you know how it is, right? Get a pension. Yep. Yeah, yeah. He'll, just, he'll just give you advice. But will you follow it? I don't know. Ten years later, you're going, Dad, I'm sorry, I've messed up. He goes, son, I told you, you know. So anyway, the point I'm trying to get to is the Visage album was just me in the DJ booth shouting at mid Billy Curry, John McGeer, and all the rest of it. <laughs> Listen, I just want this beat. Look, I want, to, I want to do like Moscow and Japan and, you know, I want to go around the world, visa, age. You know, why is it all American funk and soul? You know, there's amazing music. And of course, when you say that, people go, what amazing music comes from Japan? And you're like, well, I found the Yellow Magic Orchestra. And you go, what's that? I go, well, they take Japanese technology and they use it all including games what yeah every reference is to do with japan it's to do with technology it's to do with where they're from it's to do with what they're about it's not yowza yowza baby baby yeah that's why i like it and it starts with an amusement arcade what yeah you know when you put the money in the machine it goes do 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 i said this is what happened then the drums start going doom 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 and all electronic so they go, well, what do you like about it? But for anybody that doesn't know Yellow Magic Orchestra, Michael Jackson took their music and did Who Do You Love with yeah. Eric Clapton. You know, I mean, they, they wrote some great tunes. And then um, The Revenant. Yeah. And then um, Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. Oh. You know what I mean? So the point was nobody liked Japanese music, but I wanted to include it. That's because you could see where it was, whereas other people couldn't. You, you knew where Japanese well, music sat. Because Kraftwerk, obviously said our country's been annihilated it's currently run by the french the russians the americans whatever berlin has been split in half and all we've got is american forces radio and the beatles let's be german yeah now that was a generation of 20 year olds who were alive after the 45 so 55 there were 10 yeah 1960 you know 15 16 17 whatever and then if you watch 1970, Kraftwerk, all hippies sitting on the floor with a flute and long hair and drums and no guitars and bass, but just basically keyboards and really weird, but the non-stop music, no yeah. songs. They were just experimenting. They were. It was a kind of 
God, I hate to say this. It was a kind of jazz. There was no shape or form to it. It was just, it was just. Yeah, and there's an album, Ralph and Florian. There's three albums before Autobahn. It was an experimental time. And we've all heard about jam. If yeah. you jam, and you know when you go to see a band in rehearsals. As a matter of fact, Fade to Grey was developed in the sound check by Chris Payne and uh, Billy Curry on the Gary Newman tour. Really. And he came up with the and uh, Martin Russian, whose office was above the Blitz. Yeah, he uh, had a girl called Annie Rosebury who came down to the Blitz, met this bloke who wouldn't stop talking, Rusty Egan, <laughs> and uh, convinced him to let him come upstairs and sell him Visage. You know, so he said, "All right, you can all come to my studio, which I'm building out in the countryside. Just countryside to us, you know, yeah. just twenty minutes on a train to anyone else." <laughs> anyway. Goring and Streetly, where George Michael sadly left us on Christmas Day. And um, so we went down there and they had all the equipment there. And um, he let Billy and uh, Chris Payne and Cedric from uh, Gary Newman Band have a day to put down this idea. Yeah. And they put it down. And there was a, basically a, a TR-78 drum machine, yeah. which I own. And they basically went, you know... And then four to the floor, and you know, and then a little hi hat. So when we came to make Fade to Grey, is where you get arguments. We'd made every other song in the album. Yep. I'd been to Berlin and written the lyrics to Blocks and Blocks, written, arranged, produced by Visage. Yeah, I'd come up with Moon Over Moscow, you know, and all the this drum and that idea and Visa Age, a different town. That's my voice. Yeah, and then on the, the other album, I'm the low voice and I'm Fade to Grey, and I do a lot of vocals. And the bottom line was, I said, I want to put the big drum, the electronic drum, the one, I want to put that on. I want to put the hi-hat on. Do you want to replace the kick drum? I said, why? It's just four to the floor. Who plays the drums on Don't You Want Me? Nobody fucking cares. Nobody cares. It's a kick drum. But it's been used against me for many years. And they go, oh, you're the drummer in Visage, but you didn't actually play on Fade to Grey. I said, well, I did play on Fade to Grey. I didn't replace a kick drum on Fade to Grey, which was in time. You know, with the drum machine. Why are people so shitty? Well, everybody wants to have a go at you, right? Like I'm saying. So the point was, I ended up also being told you didn't write Fade to Grey. Or the dancer, which is credited Midjur Rusty Egan. (laughs) Wait a minute. I'm credited as a 25% writer on the dancer. An instrumental with no words created by Midge and me. Okay. You manage Midge and Billy. Is that right? (laughs) Yeah. So you don't care about the rest of the band. You don't care about Steve Strange, Rusty Egan, John McGeer, Dave. As far as you're concerned, this is just a side project for Midge and Billy. Wow. And you manage Phil Lynott, and you want me to play drums on the theme tune, Top of the Pops, you know, his album. No, Phil wants you to play drums because Midge and Phil think you're a great drummer. He'd be perfect for the track. So I'll do it for a session fee. Did you do that? I did that. That is so amazing. So what I'm saying is, the manager of Midjur treated me like a nothing, wrote me out of everything, took over Ultravox, but Midge and Billy said, no, we're still doing the Anvil album. The Anvil album was split equally, Yeah. but so was the Ultravox album, yeah. and so is U2, and so is Coldplay, and all the bands that split up were the ones that wrote out everybody and just kept like Spanner Ballet. I wrote everything and you wrote nothing. That's a mess. Now they can't get back together it's again. It's a mess, that it's is. It's a mess. They should be back together again. But you should have split it. And you know you didn't split it. And when you go, yeah, but you're just the drummer. So's Phil Collins. 
But, Shut up. Yeah, look, you know, I look at the Stone Roses and I think Rennie is the person that makes the Stone Roses. Amazing. It's the drums that oh. make the ro- The drums and the bass, Manny's bass is... I mean, Simple Minds, my God. Yes, How can the they go out on the road without bloody... them? You couldn't. The, and there's ex-Simple Minds, you know that. There's a band called Ex-Simple Minds really? out there. Yeah. Can't get a gig. Can't get arrested. That's so funny. So I'm sat with Rusty Egan and as you can tell, he is passionate about music and... Amongst other things was, in my mind, Rusty, you are half of Visage, not a quarter. You are half of Visage. He was the DJ at the world-famous Blitz Club, which was the start, the embryo of what became the centre of what then became known as the New Romantic Movement. Not a name you ever came up with as words. Well, regarding the Blitz Club, my playlist is what matters. Yeah. And if you go on to Spotify, there's about 100 people that have compiled what Rusty Egan played at the Blitz Club. You know what I mean? And recently, I had to stop Cherry Red releasing an album called Blitz Kids Music because it wasn't Blitz Kids Music. And it had a photo on the cover by Sheila Rock, the one that is on the Blitzed soundtrack. Yeah. The documentary, which I did make. Yeah. And I had to call Sheila and say, look, Sheila, you can't let them have that photograph of Visage standing outside the Blitz Club and then a load of tracks on it that are not what I played. So that's made me go, you know what? I better do my own You got to. Yeah. So the important thing about what I did at the Blitz Club is the same. I took it from Brian Eno. I'm not a musician. I said, I'm not a DJ. The important thing was, I'm putting on music that you, as a DJ, won't play. Yeah. Because you want to say, it's ladies' night, because you know it's a floor filler. And I don't. I want to play David Bowie. Yeah. And guess what? Everybody in this room wants to hear David Bowie. They don't want to hear it's ladies' night. You can do that on Saturday night in the bloody pub. To the suits. Right? Yeah. And you can put on uh, Row the Bloody Boat with a Gap Band. (laughs) We don't do that. We dress up to go out to a club. We want all people to be in there. You know, is it a boy? Is it a girl? What's all that about? Yeah, just just everyone, please. We don't care. We want you to come to a club and listen to great music. Now, people go up to me as a DJ, even in the Blitz Club, at 8 o'clock. I got there early. I put on a Crawford album, the whole album, the whole side. Or Jean-Michel Jarre, the whole album. So a bloke would come up and say, mate, mate, I heard you, you're the DJ. I go, yeah, I'm the bloke who puts the music on. Why, you got a problem? He goes, yeah, I've got, like, Tracy, the receptionist, and I've got her onto a bottle of Beaujolais, and like, I reckon one more Beaujolais, and I could take her back to my place. But this music is really a downer, man. Can't you put on Dire Straits or something? Talk about that. And I go, Clive from Accounts, why don't you just leave? I'm going to get you fired. Go on then, go and tell the manager you're going to fire me, you know. And then the manager would come over and say, you've upset Clive from Accounts. I said, do you want Clive from Accounts in here or 200 people that are about to arrive at 11 o'clock? Absolutely, (laughs) absolutely. And the point of it was I put on a whole album that I was loving as background music while I was talking to somebody. Yeah. But now you go into a place and the black gown music is annoying. Yeah, I agree. It's annoying. And a guy called me the other day and he was standing outside a bar. He said, you know, it's nine o'clock at night. I'm outside having a fag and calling you. Because there's a bloke who thinks there's 10,000 people in Ibiza in front of him, but there's 20 people in the bar. He's playing 170 BPM, you know, (laughs) drum and bass, the loudest ever, you know. Why doesn't he understand this is the time that you just played the background? Yeah, exactly. But they don't. 
and I make chill-out background music, you know, as, as you can hear if you go into it. Yeah. And I DJ chill-out sets in Ibiza, you know, on the beach or whatever. And I follow a lot of DJs like John Satrinksa yeah. from Salinas. And I hear chilled-out versions of songs, you know, there's like every song ever has been done by, you know, somebody in a different way. Yeah. And I love to discover them, you know, like Slow Club. Yeah. I've been waiting on you. One of the most beautiful songs ever. It's a great song. And I love uh, London Grammar, you know, and they Wicked Game. They're amazing. Absolutely beautiful. And then I sort of find loads and loads of beautiful acts like Makeup and Vanity Set. And I just find all these things and I make mixes and upload them. And when I go out, people come up to me, nine out of ten go on about the 80s, including my own friend. (laughs) They introduce me to people. Go, oh, I'm with Rusty Egan. But I think I did did when I met you, to be fair. Well, check this one out, right? They introduce me and they go, this is Rusty Egan. He did Visage. And I go, that was 40 years ago. But in 2018, I did You Too. If you go online and put up Rusty Egan, you That's know. brilliant. So it's like they just skip Anne Clark. They won't know about it. Well, you too, they won't know about it. Tony Hadley, Lonely Highway, Mid-Year, Glorious. They won't know about it. So we need to bring you this to the fore, don't we? Hey, look, Rusty, I always ask the same three questions. Oh, okay. And I'm going to go with you, and I'm really interested in what you're going to say. Going back to your childhood. Yeah. What did your childhood, what did it taste like? What did it sound like? And what of did music. it music? Any, anything. And what did it smell of? Give me your taste and your smell of your childhood, and then the oh sound my of God. your childhood. I know. Good. I had a very unhappy childhood. Did you? Yeah. The smell was institutions. You know, like like a hospital. You know, like those school dinner. Yeah. You know, school dinners and institutions. I was uh, not with my parents until I was six. Right. I was in Ireland, and September the third, nineteen sixty-three. B-O-A-C, do you like that? (laughs) B-O-A-C, came to England and uh, went to a a local Church of England school until my mum got me into the Catholic school, which I didn't like at all. No. I was liked by the dinner ladies. That was about it. Spent most of my time outside the headmaster's office looking at a Picasso picture and being a messed up kid, really. And then uh, I went to the shrink department yeah. Who said, square peg, round hole, would you like to go to what they described as like a holiday camp? Yeah. Yeah, of course I'll go. So I went to this school and I was quite lucky. It was a bit Hogwarts. They had spaces for some not very privileged kids. And I got in there and I excelled. I did well. I, I, I learned to get past Jack and Jill, you know. Yeah. And learned how to read and write. And um, I really enjoyed being free in the woods and that. So my childhood there was great. And then they let us go out on a Saturday afternoon to Basingstoke. And I went into like Woolworths and I heard chirpy, chirpy, cheap, cheap and all this pop music. Yeah. And in those days, you would hang around the record shop. And of course, I met a girl, 14. Yeah. And got a phone number. And uh, had to go back to school. And then I'd arrange to meet her and try and get out of the school. And then when I was banned from my Saturday out because I'd been naughty during the week, that meant I couldn't see her. Yeah. And that meant I'd have to defy the ban. So the point really was is that escalated into we can't handle him. He disappears. He jumps the gate. He goes out, you know. And uh, it's real like, um, what, are they, what are they called, those um, teenage coming-of-age films? Yeah. yeah like yeah. Kez, you know. So... 
I had a sort of coming of age teenage life. And then I ended up in Borstal, actually like scum. Really? You know, really horrible, Fucking heavy, hell. violent, disgusting place. And I had to learn to handle my own corner, you know. Again, I got rescued by Brother Cuthbert, the Christian brothers, and taken on a trip to Ireland, where I finally got back to my childhood home. Yeah. Which was uh, in Assumpta Park in Newcastle, Western Ireland. And I got to meet people. I'm, I'm welling up now, crying. Bless you. Yeah, sorry. No, don't apologise. <laughs> it was a terrible childhood. Anyway. Fucking hell. Yeah, I got out of there and luckily music, you know. And it's the most amazing thing. That's why I'm so emotional. But, you know, <sighs> we all need a lift sometimes. We all need something. The bottom rung of a ladder. And it's normally a passion-driven ladder or a break in some way. And music became that escalator for you. It became something to lift you up. And, you know, when you describe how you were at school, Rusty, it's like you got ADHD. It's quite clear, right? We just didn't have the skills. I've got it now. I've yeah. got it now. Snap. Yeah, I'm the same. Yeah, I mean, what I do sometimes, you know, I've got a hearing aid now, right? Yeah. And um, I'm getting uh, new teeth, Yeah, you know. And uh, I've been told I'll get a cataract operation. Okay. Well, if you go on the underground, there's a sign and it says, not all disabilities are visible. And I tend to talk very loudly. Whatever. Can't hear you. I've got my hearing aid in now and it whistles and it's a cheap thing. I'm going to find some money and pay for a very expensive hidden hearing. Anyway, the bottom line is, yeah, I have disabilities and those disabilities are probably not visible. Yeah. And yeah, I deal with them to the best of my ability. But my heart's in the right place. There isn't um, an evil bone in my body. And unfortunately, it's a defect. It's Monday morning now. Most people have got to work out how they're going to eat, pay the rent, yeah, pay the bills. What am I going to do this week? How am I going to do it? Some don't have the ability to earn it or had a missing father or whatever. Yeah. And they grab a bread knife and they leave the house. Yeah. And they go, I'm just going to fucking take it. And they go into a shop, they just take it. Whatever they do, they put on a hoodie, they put on a mask, whatever they do, they're doing it through desperation of life. Yeah. If they're driving a big car and wearing a big watch and covered in diamonds and then they're like robbing people, it's because they're emulating someone they want to be rather than be themselves. I'm not a shrink. I do listen to people on Joe Rogan and Lex Friedman and Sam Harris and all these yeah. really intellectual people who would talk about what a real man is and, you know, and obviously there's some people who say, if you haven't got a uterus, you're not a woman, then they all get into a debate and they all start arguing with each other. No, I listen to head stuff. Yeah. But I would say that I am damaged, definitely. But I would say it comes out through music. Yeah. The reason I got really hurt with David Johnson was that after 21 years from 1995 to 2018, I didn't have a drink or a drug. And it's 2022 now. Yeah. I still haven't had a drink or a drug. And I embarked upon a journey of just letting go, not drinking for today, you know, whatever. Yeah. And I had guidance. I had people helping me and I had other people who'd done it. And, uh, and I kept it to myself. And I didn't go around announcing that I don't drink or take drugs, just, you know. And I managed to bring up three children on my own who are now all doing really well in life. Amazing. I managed to deal with resentments that 
still today, for anyone listening, I have not been paid for Visage. Seriously? That is a fact. Added to that, I don't get PRS or PPL. Bloody hell. It's taken by the Inland Revenue. I don't make any money from music. I make music and I love it. But there is no money. It's not about money. I didn't write, I thought that I could never love again, but I was wrong for money. But if Mark Armand sings it on his next album, I might make some money because I own it. He's a good man, isn't he? Yeah, he called me and I gave him the contact for the Ronnie song that he covered. He covered a song by Ronnie. Yeah. And I discovered Ronnie in Paris and made her first record, which was written by Sly Stone, another man who spent 20 years living in a car until he got his royalties. Poor guy. So talking of what I'm talking about now, I tweeted Kanye West two days ago and I linked him to the first ever hip-hop event in New York and I said, I was there and you're here because he tweeted... Am I online? Because he, he thought he was cancelled. Yeah. Since Elon Musk took over Twitter, it, Donald Trump on. is back and, and uh, Kanye's back. And I replied, yeah, I was there. And there was, there's a flyer saying Africa Bambata. And uh, I was there and you were here. And I said, please use my beats. And all Kanye does is, you know, sing on top of Daft Punk or something. Yeah. So I will not even sing, you know. So I was going, if he uses my beats, you know, yeah. I have a hit. So Afrika Barbati used my beats and I didn't get paid. Did they? Well, I wrote it, made it, did all the music and then they rapped on it. So my first memory of them was with Public Image, was with John Lydon. Yeah. Uh, really early 80s, I'm guessing about 83, something like that, 82. Right. I'd never heard anything like Afrika Barbata. But to be fair... You heard Time Zone then? Yes, yeah, totally. And I'd, yes, and I'd never heard anything like Sugar Hill Gang. And they, yeah. they blew me away. I think they are yeah. absolutely superb. Yeah, that is just chic, though. Is but it? look, John Lydon had a really big hit. I could be wrong, I could be right. Yeah, right. 50% of that was written by Bill Laswell, who I signed. Bill Laswell was in a band called Material. Material had a singer called Nona Hendricks. If you like what I've done with um, Anne Clark... I love it. ...you should listen to Nona Hendricks. Brilliant. And on my album, Welcome to the Remix... It starts with an interview with Nona Hendricks. It's brilliant. And the interviewer says, so when was it that you uh, finally got to do what you want to do? And she said, oh, do what you want to do. That's the track I made with Rusty Egan. <laughs> <laughs> and then I took that and then I delay Rusty Egan, Rusty Egan, Rusty Egan. And I dropped the beat. And the beat is a TR-808 in 1982. Yeah. And it was played on WBLS in New York. And then sometimes I tweet it. And I say, when did techno start? <laughs> and they're all like 1990. And you're like, mate, this is 1982, you know. Yeah. And for anyone listening now, being the innovator, i.e. being the first, like Kraftwerk, there isn't necessarily a payoff for being the first. No. Kraftwerk had made three unbelievable albums, unbelievable albums, and nobody knew who they were. I went on an aeroplane to Dusseldorf and went searching for them, found them in a nightclub, and spent a whole evening telling them, don't you realise what you've done? Trans Europe Express, you know, auto, but I mean, what you've done. And the bottom line is, this is the important bit for any technical people listening. Are you talking rubbish? What is MIDI? It wasn't invented in the 70s, that's right. So how can a drum machine be in perfect time with a mini Moog? They can't be synced together you couldn't 
do a sequence like on the Visage album. You had to play it by hand. Played by hand. One hand is doing that, the other one is doing the chords. Dun, 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 dun. You need two keyboard players. You need a drum that's in perfect time. Hence, you have a drum machine. The same drum machine that is on the beginning of Enola Gay. A year before that record, I'd programmed that drum machine on charade with the skids with Bill Nelson. That's a great Everyone track. arguing. Everyone arguing. Why have we got a drum machine on our record? We're a bloody punk band. You know. And the point really is, is the drum machine wasn't welcome. DJs had T-shirts on that said, computers have got no soul. And then Marvin Gaye released Sexual Healing and that peed all over them. <laughs> all these DJs were going on about funky this and funky that. And funk was the 70s, this was the 80s, this was it. And along came Depeche Mode, along came Soft Cell, the biggest dance records ever, but the DJs wouldn't have it. Oh no, Spyro Gyro have got a new album out. They were hanging on to Shack Attack. <laughs> so I was the DJ who said, I'm not a DJ. It's really interesting, the seam between punk and new romantic. Talk me through, because late 70s, 76, 77 punk, the new romantic, not your words, not my words, but that started to emerge sort of 79, 80. You really want me to talk you through it? Very quickly, yeah. Very quickly. <laughs> so for anyone listening, I do talk a bit. But then again, you have a choice. You can turn it off, you know. And if you look at Joe Rogan, he talks to some people for three hours. Yeah. You know, and I never get bored. I'm like, I'm there. I put them on at night and I fall asleep. And three hours later, I wake up. The guy's still, still going. Still going. On. Bit like, I, a bit like Van de Graaff Generator. Yeah, I just rewind <laughs> back to the beginning. I love Trishan Harris. Absolutely love Trishan Harris. Love where he's coming from. So anyway, if you were a teenager in the 70s, you had to have a Ben Sherman or you had to have a pair of Dr. Martins or you had to have a pair of Levi's. So the point was fashion was intertwined with your musical style. Yeah. And when you saw Slade as a 70s guy and they went on top of the pops, they were wearing clothes that you didn't wear, all that glam, extra high, Elton John with three-foot platforms. This was way, way, way over the top. But you did go, oh, I'll get a satin shirt. Yeah. Oh, I can get, you know. So the point was fashion and music was culture. So if you had a skinhead haircut, we knew what music you liked. Yeah. But also what went with that culture was football thug violence. Yeah, yeah. Which also appeared in the punk gigs. So you went to a gig and you were like a more of a fashionable person, i.e. Malcolm McLaren, Seditionaries, Adam and the Ant. Yeah. And then there were a load of thugs and they wanted to beat people up. So the real point was all these misfits didn't have anywhere to go. They went to the Sex Pistols at 100 Club. They were at all the gigs. I was a drummer in The Clash before they were The Clash. Yeah. I you shut the fuck up and you might be in the band. And they kept looking for another drummer. Couldn't put up with me. So uh, Glenn Matlock took me instead. So the bottom line was we had nowhere to go. And Steve Strange was a misfit. He'd run away from... Um, what Was he Welsh? Yeah, Newport in Wales. Yeah. And he'd showed up at all of uh, the rich kids gigs yeah and then you we were in for newport, the rich kids weren't you i stayed in newport and then yeah. went to the next gig two days later or whatever and i hung out with him and bottom line was when he came to london can i borrow your sofa you know so i had this bloke on the sofa 
And we went out clubbing. He took me to all these underground clubs. They're underground because they're gay clubs and nobody wants you to know that they go to a gay club yeah. in those days. Yeah. So anyway, the real point was, I said, these clubs are great, but they play the same songs every week, you know, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, whatever, yeah. disco. I said, but we want to hear Susie and the Banshees and David Bowie and Roxy Music and Kraftwerk. Why don't we play the best of this, I Feel Loved, on the summer? Yeah. You know, um, Don Ray, Got to Have Loving, great track. So the bottom line was we went into this little club in Soho called Billy's, met the equivalent of um, the bloke in, um, the, what was the name of the street hustler drug dealer in that 70s uh, program? What did you, I've forgotten his name. They had car wash. Oh, yeah. So there's a bloke with a sort of fedora hat and a fur yeah. coat. Fur coat. Oh, a huggy bear in Starsky and bear type. Yeah. I own this club, you know. And uh, we said, look, we'll fill it up on a Tuesday night, you know. And he goes, all right, then you can have it, you know. He was obviously in another business, you know. Anyway, the bottom line was we filled it up. You yeah. Know? And that all these people that had been at all the gigs were suddenly reunited. Oh, I saw you at the Banshees gig. Oh, I haven't seen you since Generation X. And I haven't seen you since that last Clash gig, Wyatt Riot thing. I was yeah. at January 1st, 77. I was at the Roxy. And here we were now in 78. It was yeah. 78. November-ish. So bottom line was New Romantics. Punks were basically went to Acme Attractions, King's Road, bought all their clothes. Yeah. They were now all in this club. And you couldn't say... Acme oh, was where a, Don Let's work. Don, yeah. 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 You couldn't say it's, um, it's a punk club. No. So it was a club, and it had all these people in it, and it played this weird music, and Siobhan from Banana Rama, I'm going to get a band together. You know, all that. Yeah, yeah. And a few that had been in a band. John Moss had been in a band called London, and everybody had been in a band, everybody had been to the punk gigs, and now, well, I'm not really sure what I'm going to do, you know. So they went to this club. So we were all dressed up, always were. Yeah. And now we're new romantics. The romantic angle comes from my romance because I would play very beautiful music. Yeah. Early evening too, like uh, Charles Asvenor, you know, which I love. Yeah, beautiful. And Dieter Meyer has done a track with, um, I can't say their name. It, it means two-room, it's a two-room apartment, but it's in German. It's called Two Runger Hunger. And he says, um, Charles Asvenor, just the way he says it, Dieter Meyer. Yeah. And uh, it's a beautiful track. And I play all this current music, DJ Hell, and I currently still DJ at, like, Torture Garden and the Reptile Club. Yeah. And I was in there on Saturday night, and people come up and they go, the Batcave, man, that was the beginning of it all. And I go, oh, yeah, I signed Specimen. And no, I said, yeah, I made Kiss Kiss Bang Bang with them in Trident. I produced a cult and a Spear of Destiny. And it's sort of like... The subject matter is always music. Yeah. I remember reading that you produced Spear of Destiny. And I, and I remember that era when Kurt kind of became, well, from Theatre of Hate. But he came to the Blitz. It's amazing. Yeah. But there's a point here that really reminds me of something Johnny Marr said recently, talking about Tony Wilson and the Hacienda. He said, if Tony hadn't built the Hacienda, then the kids in, in Manchester wouldn't have thought they could have aimed for New York. You've got to see it to be it. And the Blitz was very much like that, from my perspective. Yeah. You didn't know the world could be like that well, until you made it. I'm friends with Peter Hook. Yeah. And he and I did a track on my, my last album, my only album. 
And um, I was in a bar and a bloke was talking to me about Peter Hook's very, very private life. Like I just welled up talking yeah. about my childhood. And um, he was talking about his failed marriage to Carolina Hearn. I said, mate, mate, I don't do gossip and I'll do it. No. He goes, oh, no, I read his book. <laughs> and Peter has done the warts and all. He has, yeah. And he has turned his life around on his own, cut out of new order, cut out of everything. And the point was, Andy Warhol created the factory and they were victims, yeah, as you know, idiots yeah. and all that. But people need a place to go and someone like Rusty Egan, who might say to them, like Spanner Ballet, get a bloody synth. Stuart Goddard went to see Malcolm McLaren and said, look, Malcolm, I've released Dirt Wears White Socks, Adam and the Ants. I've not got anywhere. I look at the Clash and look at the Pistols, look at the Banshees. I'm not getting anywhere. Can you help me? And he said, listen to Burundi Black. Look at Gary Glitter. Get another bloody drummer. It's all about the beat. <laughs> Two drummers. Yes. One slightly off beat with the other. By a millisecond, gives this depth. Oh. I was watching another band of two. It was Liam Gallagher. Yeah. His son plays drums right. with him. But he has another drummer as well. And of I was, course. I was stuck in Edinburgh the other night before my sleeper. And I thought, well, what's on at the... I haven't been to... I've never... So you had, a, you had a night to go and see something. I've never been to the cinema on my own, Rusty. Yeah. So I w looked at what was on, what worked with the train, Liam Gallagher live at Nebworth. It was brilliant. So Gene yeah. plays drums... But have hit, you seen hit, the documentary about Liam Gallagher? No. Is oh, it it's unbelievable. His return. His return to where he is now. He's a national treasure now. He's a national treasure. But he could have gone right gone. Could have lost it. Well, he, uh, arguably... Yeah. He Roy Eldridge, who is his manager, is the nicest guy in the world and his son is his manager amazing and he was at chrysalis records roy he was one of the nicest people in the music business i've got a handful of them rob dickens you know roy eldridge God, um, i've not heard that a, name for ages yeah there's a handful of really amazing people that did amazing people for people's careers yeah like rob dickens orinoco flow he's yeah. credited in the um in the world but there were people and if you find those people right now there's a guy called john saunderson and he does a night at Tile Yard. Yeah. And Tile Yard has about 70 studios, and Martin Ware has a studio there from um, Human League. British Electric lecturer. Foundation. Yeah, the BEF. Yeah, and yeah. he's a lecturer there. The guy from Cabaret Voltaire is in Sheffield, and yeah. uh, the guy from B Movie is in Leeds. And a, a lot of people uh, like me have had a career, and uh, like me, some of them not getting their royalties, but they tell the next generation. And I've got to finish here because I do upset a lot of people. I was invited to a house party and um, I found a 20-year-old girl who's got a voice of Amy Winehouse and I, I found her by accident at the film premiere we were talking about and we afterwards we went to a club and they wouldn't let us in because she was the one who yeah. didn't have the ID. Anyway, and I brought her to the studio afterwards and I got her to sing a song. Anyway, and then I got all upset. I'll tell you why. On the Monday, I said, look, I'm invited to a friend of mine. He's an artist, and there'll be some really interesting people there, and you should go because you might meet some people, and then I'll buy you fish and chips. So the bottom line was we met at this address, and then there was a kid there, 20 years old, and um, he's in a band. I said, oh, great, well, blah, 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 what are you about? He told me the name of the band, and I said, oh, I know the manager of the band. He's a really lovely guy and an amazing guy. And you know what, mate? I said, this band had been around for five years. Look at you. You don't even look 20. He said, I'm 18. So I said, okay, so you weren't in the band when it started five years ago. He said, no. I said, listen, 
I hope you're in the band because you're a songwriter. He said, why? I said, because all any indie band needs is a great song. A great songwriter. All they need is a great songwriter, right? They, you know, all the best ones. And he went, so what have you done? <laughs> so I said, my career's over. You're just starting. And with an attitude like that, I'm going to call your manager and tell him to get another fucking bass player. <laughs> so I did. I called his manager and I said, get another bass player. Let him learn the hard way. You've got to write the song. I can't write the songs. I've written songs with Midgeur, Peter Hook, Tony Hadley, Visage, the whole, the whole thing. Yeah. I haven't had hits. Fade to Grey was the hit. Uh, Night Train was a hit as well. Well, whatever. They're all minors. Yeah. I haven't written Creep the by monster. Radiohead. I haven't written the, the Oasis or the, you know what I mean? I haven't written the hit. Midgeur maybe could and, and has. All I'm saying is I freely give in a conversation because I want the manager's band to be a success. Yeah. Mate, I hope he got you in because you're the songwriter. You know what I mean? Because I really want him oh. to have a success. You know. Rusty, you know, uh, well, we need to bring this to an end just because I've, I've booked Are you room happy for with now. what we talked about? Fucking amazing. Are you sure? Yeah, yeah. And I'm going to finish it nicely. So. Oh, you said three questions, only answered one. You answered one. Well, you kind of answered the other one because there was the smell, the sound which you talked about the sound, and the taste of your childhood. What did your childhood taste of? Semolina. Semolina, with a blob of raspberry jam or without? Have to have the jam, mate. Got without to. the jam, did it you, mix you it couldn't up, eat it. Did you mix it up and make I it I mixed it. Yes. Yeah, yeah, couldn't eat that stuff. Separated by 10 years, we shared a childhood. Oh, horrible. Rusty, I'm really struck by your level of empathy and emotional intelligence. It's so high and it's so surprising given the tough start in life you had and how you've lifted other people, including your three kids, as you've gone. I've got four. Four kids. My, my daughter is absolutely wonderful and gave me a granddaughter. And basically, I'm on Instagram every day following her, going to school and all that. And I've got some photos last week of her. Her stepfather is Mick Jones from The Clash. Oh, yeah. yeah. And she is as proud as both of us. And as wonderful to both of us. And of course, I played drums with Mick of Jones. Of course, and, yeah. and if you go on YouTube in 2009 or 10 or something, I played drums with him on stage because the drummer couldn't make it. Let me finish with this. Steve New from Rich Chris passed away. Yeah. But before he passed away, he had cancer. So we did a concert for him and Mick Jones and Vivian showed up from the slits. And then Mick said, my drummer can't make it. Get on a kit. So I end up playing Why Do Men Fight from um, his band. And then... I've done a song with Midjure, Glenn Matlock, and Earl Slick yeah. in homage to Steve New, which started out as a demo for the Rich Kids album that never got made. So basically, I've done that for my new album, which is coming out in 2023. Midge is on the demo, but he hasn't done the lead vocal yet, and I'm yeah. trying to twist his arm. He'll do it. But Glenn Matlock said, I'll do it. I said, no, well, I want him to do it. So it was in homage to Steve. So empathy... Emotion, I think everything I do, and I have been ridiculed for it, Rusty, you're too passionate. You're too passionate. And I think it's passion that, to me, when I watch a movie, I can see through a sort of ham-acting movie or, you know. Yeah. But if I watch Mulholland Drive and I watch the audition scene, I'm passionate about acting. I'm going, she's an actress, playing an actress, doing a casting to get the part. She's acting three different characters. <laughs> layers, and yeah. Layers. And 
It's unbelievable. And I'm a friend of Bill Nighy, and he gives yeah. me the greatest you know, compliment to Rusty. You're an amazing character. You're the only Rusty. I'm going, what? Just be brilliant at being Rusty. No one else can do it. And he's right. And in a way, for anyone listening to this program now, the song I made with you too, Love is Bigger Than Anything, right, in its way, it's actually all, that is the title. You have really long. There's a video. Yeah. And on the video, there's an Irish girl, and the Irish girl, she talks really, really fast like this, you know. So I contacted her. I said, look, I want to do a really chilled, beautiful version, but can you send me the Irish girl talking really, really fast? So basically, they sent me this Irish girl talking really, really fast, and I've got this beautiful beat. And then she basically says, what is it that you are here to give to the world? Why are you here to give to the world? And sometimes when people say to me, oh, why don't you just shut up? I say, well, I'm 65. Soon I will. You'll never hear another word from me. Not yet. I haven't written the book. I haven't told all the stories. I haven't kissed and told. I haven't sold my soul. I'm not famous. I don't want to be in the jungle. I don't want to be on Hard FM Radio with me, Rusty Egan. I don't want to do what you want me to do. I'm delivering what I love. And I'm delivering a new album. And as a man who lost his partner of 25 years, mother of his kids, I go to bed alone and I wake up alone and I feel that loss every day. Yeah. And every day I want to fill my heart and my bed with the love that I've got for another person yeah. that was denied me, but not invite into my life somebody that will kill me. And I'm immediately attracted to not very well people. And I love you know, a bird with a broken wing, and I love to help them, and they fly away. And I've got about five of them, which is why I thought I could never love again. But I was wrong. <laughs> and I wrote that song because I do fall in love all the time, but with people that I help. And it's a, it's a, kind, of, it's a kind of disease to avoid helping yourself. And if you talk to a shrink, they'll say, oh, you get these people that run around. What do you want to do is get involved with other people's business. And they're trying to help everyone. But really, their own life is falling apart. So it's kind of like that. I kind of like meet someone like the girl I met the other day. And then I hear her voice. And I think, this is like another Amy Winehouse. Yeah. This girl, if I could just help open the door, invite her somewhere, introduce her to somebody. But you are a kingmaker, right? You, that's what you do. And you know, the last words here. But I did it for Madonna and people don't know that. No. Well, where was her first gig in the UK? It was... And with me. It was at the Hacienda. Was was, no, was it? I got her to the Hacienda yes. after the Camden Palace. Was it the Palace? I brought her over oh, and got her at the Hacienda. The nights I've had at the Camden Palace. Yeah. Look, Rusty Egan, I've always wondered whether the words new romantic are right. They absolutely describe you. You I are... I call a- me album a new romantic. Because more people know that than they know me. But you are a new romantic. You know. And I love it. And please don't change. Please don't Well, I've written this song and it goes, You fell in love with my best friend and I fell in love with you. Oh, sad. And basically, I am in love with my best friend. Of course, we all are. So I've written this song. The next verse is that somebody, somewhere, is in love with you. And then in the break, I've got Andy Mackay from Roxy Music on sax. Yeah. 
And then I've got Eric Stein from Cult With No Name and he says, someone, somewhere is in love with you. And what I'm saying in that song is that we all love somebody who's in love with somebody else. Yeah. And I've got two or three girls that if I made the call, oh, come over, come over, come and meet us. And they are slightly in love with me. Not like freakish. No. But I'm... I'm in love with someone and I can't tell them. And I post sometimes that picture of um, that New Year's Eve couple. Yeah. That film in the 80s where they kissed on New Year's Eve. I've forgotten. It's a great film. I post a picture sometimes. And I basically, my wife was my best friend, you know? And I think most men who are in a beautiful relationship with their wife and kids, if you gave them a supermodel, go, piss off. Love me wife. Yeah, I wouldn't. And they're like, for yeah, anyone. and the supermodel's going, yeah, but look at your wife. She needs to like go in the gym. He goes, no, she doesn't. She's beautiful. I love my wife. And when my wife had kids, you know, and I was there feeding, doing the whole thing. I was doing the real thing and putting on the back of my hand and warming the thing and doing the night sleep, yeah. all that kind of stuff. You know, I just love my wife even more. Yeah. You know, the awe that I have for women after watching. My wife give they birth give and raise body. four they kids. They give up their looks. They give up their career. It's amazing. They do everything. And then you go, oh, look at you. You don't look great. You haven't been in the gym. And the poor girl is going, no, I've just had three kids yeah. and been up at five in the morning and done the school run. And, and added way more to humanity than going to the gym. I'll end with every time I go to an event and I meet somebody's wife. I go, hi, what do you do? Oh, I'm only his wife. I go, love. Everything he does is for you and the kids. <laughs> He would rather be at home with you yeah. than having to do what he has to do every day to do it. And that's the thing. I love what I do, but now I do it at home. No word. You're, you're absolutely right. Rusty Egan, I'm going to bring this to an end. You're amazing. I'm so glad I walked up Greek Street that day. Not Greek Street, Dean Street, and bumped into you. You were walking around Soho. I was, of course. you met this. <laughs> this shady character from the past and the future. Thank you, Rusty. Thank you for inviting me. That was amazing.